This is episode 132 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and we are back with our At the Table segment that we did. Well, we've done a few of these with Dr. Marty Brodsky and Dr. Paula Leslie. We are back for a COVID edition, unfortunately. I'm sad that this is what had to bring us back together, but I'm grateful that they were able to come back and have this chat with me today. So Dr. Brodsky is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation and a member of the Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery Group, a multidisciplinary clinical and research group dedicated to understanding and improving patient outcomes after critical illness and surgery at Johns Hopkins University. His peer-reviewed research publications and book chapters focus on swallowing and swallowing disorders and laryngeal injury after endotracheal intubation. Dr. Brodsky's research program is funded by the NIH, studying the effects of critical illness and critical care medicine on swallowing and the airway and their long-term outcomes. He is a fellow of ASHA, an associate editor for the Dysphagia Journal, and a section editor for Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab. His clinical practice specializes in adult swallowing and neurologic communication disorders. Dr. Paula Leslie supports clinicians and researchers from local to the international level with complex decision-making, ethics, end-of-life, and vulnerable populations. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire, oh my gosh, I hope I said that right, in the United Kingdom, and, and she's interested in non-traditional routes to advanced clinical training. She serves as the associate coordinator for ASHA SIG 15, and she's on the editorial board of ASHA SIG 13. She's a full member of DRS and a founding member and current scientific chairperson of the UK Swallow Research Group. She's proud to be a fellow of the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists, and she received the SWPSHA, which I believe is the Southwest Pennsylvania Speech and Hearing Association Honors of the Association, and the Louis M. DiCarlo Award for Contributions to Palliative Care and SLP Work. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I was about to say, I hope you're all doing well, which I do hope everyone's doing well. I just know a lot of people probably are not doing well and we're all coping the best we can in this new reality that we never thought we'd have to live through. But anyways, we're here and I really just want to turn this podcast into a place for support and, you know, make it someplace that's relatable for you since I know we're all going through our own different experiences and every single setting and every single facility is so different with what they're facing right now. Um, If you are in one of the facilities that is really just the calm before the storm and just, you know, waiting for your wave of COVID patients to come through, um, we have opened up the MedSLP Collective. Uh, If you go to MedSLPCollective.com, you can join uh, we have lots of resources, lots of webinars for ASHA CEUs. If you go to medslpcollective.com forward slash student, we also have a student rate for those grad students and even undergrad students that I know have been completely misplaced at this time. Not misplaced, we didn't lose you. Displaced <laughs> at this time and, and anything we can do to support you. Additionally, I know MedBridge has been wonderful at this time with all of their COVID resources that they have. 
Um, so if you're interested in joining MedBridge, you can go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP and get half off of their rate. Um, that money does go to keeping this podcast going, just a, a heads up for that. And yeah, I, I hope you all enjoy this episode with Dr. Brodsky and Dr. Leslie. They're just wonderful people. I could talk to them all day, any day. So stay safe, stay healthy, take care of yourself, and I'll catch you guys soon. Hello, everybody. We are here for a special edition of our our wonderful segment with Dr. Marty Brodsky and Dr. Paula Leslie, our continuation of our At the Table segment, but this is in the midst of our COVID-19 pandemic. And there's a lot of things we wanted to cover today, but really just, you know, one of the main things is is how different everything is in, in different settings, in different states, in different facilities, different counties, different countries. And so it's wonderful to have Paula here too, to kind of chime in on what's going on over in the UK. And, you know, really a, a point of this conversation is we want to be careful and not making any general sweeping blanket statements about what our profession should and shouldn't be doing at this time. Because like I said, there's so many different different laws, rules, regulations of, of what we should be doing. And, and to be honest, I don't know that anybody really has a manual for what we should be doing at this point. So I just kind of want to talk about some different viewpoints to consider. Um, we're going to talk about a few research papers. We're just going to talk about some clinical experience, and hopefully you'll get some good information from this episode. So, Paula, if people don't remember who you are, you've actually moved since you've been on here last time. So I've actually moved. So, hi, everybody. My name is Paula Leslie, and I'm a speech and language therapist trained in Britain, speech and language pathologist in America, Member of SIG 13, the Swallowing, Swallowing Disorders SIG, member of SIG 15, Gerontology. I am involved with the Royal College here in Britain as a professional advisor in dysphagia. I did a degree in bioethics whilst I was at the University of Pittsburgh. Hopefully a lot of you will have met me at various state meetings. You know, I, I have some interest in sort of big picture stuff and left field, you know, complex decision making and I'm currently over in the UK at the University of Central Lancashire, where we're setting up a speech language therapy department. All right. Dr. Brodsky, who's actually wearing an Australia shirt to throw another wrench into things. Are you representing that continent as well? <laughs> I don't dare represent okay. anything other than my own point I just of sat view. back and I was like, oh, we got another continent here. <laughs> I, I have some very good friends down under, but I will not. No, no, no. Okay. Um, Coming to you from Baltimore. Yes. I, okay. I, I've been in Baltimore for more than a decade and don't foresee leaving Baltimore anytime soon. How's that? Wonderful. Uh, even though Teresa introduced me, I guess I'll reintroduce myself. Martin Brodsky, Marty Brodsky. Uh, I'm an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins University. I split my time these days doing uh, outpatient clinics primarily, as well as research. Uh, when I'm uh, doing research, you can very often find me uh, in the ICUs. I'm in five ICUs recruiting patients and doing endoscopies with patients and all sorts of other things, um, talking with team members, doing consultations, things of that nature. Similar to Paula, I'm a member of SIG-13, been around the ASHA community for quite some time, certified speech-language pathologist and all-around decent guy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and if you disagree, I don't want to hear about it. So. Neither do I. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the, to the both of you for joining us today. So one disclaimer I want to make is today is Saturday, April 4th that we are recording this. So if you hear this next week or whenever you are listening to this, and if something changes, some CDC statement, something with ASHA, please don't send me hate mail. This is as of Saturday, April 4th, what we know of the status of things. So the next thing I want to talk about is really, like I said, I don't want to make any blanket sweeping statements about what our role is with all of of, of this COVID-19, but we do have a role. And I know for some states, we are considered essential employees. For some, we are not. So it depends on what state you're living in or country or continent at this point. But what it comes down to is, is a a lot of it is we're considered an essential profession, but then what are we supposed to be treating as far as what is what patients? Is there specific conditions? And really what it comes down to and how, you know, Ash has advised us is to take it on a case-by-case basis and go based on medical necessity. So now let's open up that can of worms in what constitutes medical necessity. And again, I, this just varies so vastly across settings, and it's going to be vastly different for an acute care SLP as it is for a SNF SLP, as it is for home health, as it is for outpatient at this time. That's really what I want to talk about is, is, and I know, Marty, you can really speak to this in the acute care setting, and I can speak to it kind of in, in SNF and home health, and, and Paul is going to probably play referee here because she's wonderful in that setting, and, and also chime in kind of on, on the ethics of, of what our role is. And I think all of us are in agreement that we do not, should not abandon our patients at this time, but maybe there's, how do we go about treating this? And, and Marty, I'll let you kind of start here. So I think the abundance of caution is the first thing that everybody needs to address. And that is we as healthcare workers, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about nurses and physicians, therapists, psychologists, or otherwise, it does not matter who you are. But if you as a healthcare worker are, quote unquote, putting yourself in the mix, you need to be primarily concerned about your health, your protection. Because if that is compromised, you're not going to be around to do anything in the first place. That absolutely has to be priority number one. So above all else, protect yourself in whatever means, laws, regulations, guidelines, policies that entails for the setting that you're in, even within the setting, dealing specifically on on different units, even within a hospital. The medical ward is different from the inpatient rehab, is different from ICU is different from an isolation room, is different from the hallway. So whatever setting broadly you find yourself in, make sure you're wearing the proper gear. What if the proper gear is not available? Uh, well, and and there's, there's the issue. That's where physical distancing comes. I, I'm going to side, uh, we had some discussion offline and we've heard it uh, in the media as well. It's now becoming a better term than this social distancing that has been regarded. Physical distancing is the term that is preferred. It is the physical distance from an individual. It's not that we are socially um, incommunicado with people and we're trying to distance ourselves from communication and socializing. Uh, So I wanna draw that distinction. So physical distance is a gigantic piece of this puzzle part of physical distance that just came out yesterday 
as federal suggestion or national guideline, if you will, is the placement of, at the very least, cloth masks over your face, including your nose and mouth, in public spaces. It has been a policy at Johns Hopkins specifically for a while now. It is now a very strong suggestion coming from the CDC uh, in terms of a guideline. So I will very strongly encourage the use of that. In my mind, it is not an option. It is something that you should be doing as standard wear, the same way you'd put on shirt and pants to go out in public. So uh, stepping aside from protection, I think I've hit that nail hard enough. The second thing that we need to consider is what exactly is going on with specific patients. This is not a blanket order in any regard. It is every individual for themselves. The person, as I said, in the three main settings, if you will, within a hospital are inpatient rehab, the medical wards outside of the ICU, and of course, the ICU slash step-down units. Uh, so let's start with uh, inpatient rehab units. Most inpatient rehab units do not have PPE in any regard. They'll have their gloves. Those will always be available as they always have been, uh, but you're not going to uh, find masks, smocks, N95s, pappers, and so forth. That level of PPE is found on the medical floors. So don't expect it. Don't ask for it. If the patient needs it, then frankly, they're going to be out of the unit. It's not going to be a concern. Uh, stepping up to the medical wards, of course, you're going to find all of that. And in fact, at Johns Hopkins specifically, multiple floors have been dedicated to COVID patients. Buildings have been turned into negative pressure, similar to what you would find in an, air, uh, an airborne precautions room that you would walk in with somebody who has TB, for example. So the point here is that it's full guard in every regard on the medical floor. Now, once you get into the ICU, it's absolutely mandatory that you're wearing either an N95 mask with a face shield or its equivalent. And I want to stress that the equivalent of that is a PAPR mask. So the two are viewed identically by Johns Hopkins as protective. There is virtually no difference. Now, the one distinction that they do make, and this will come into play a little bit in a few moments, is that when you're doing CPR or you're doing, and you're specifically at the patient's head and you're doing intubation, a PAPR mask is the only thing that is acceptable. An N95 with a face shield is not. So they have even stepped it up to the point where very close contact with the uh, areas that we believe are high viral load are taking that extra precaution, if you will, and that a full sealed PAPR mask is the only thing that is acceptable. So with that idea, doing fees in the hospital for all intents and purposes, according to many entities, not just ASHA, but including the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery, the British Laryngological Association, and multiple entities around the world. They have strongly advised no endoscopies at all, period. Now, with that said, there are endoscopies going on. There are exceptions that are perfectly appropriate. 
And I very much stand on the, on the, scale, on the side of the scale that if a patient is undergoing a medical necessity that requires the endoscopy, then do it. Just be safe about it. Okay. So again, coming back to the safety plus the endoscopy side of it, and then I'll give up the discussion and let somebody else speak because I don't want to be the only voice here. When you come to doing an endoscopy with somebody, I would very strongly under all circumstances in the hospital and specifically with a COVID positive patient that is of medical necessity and you're doing the endoscopy, and we'll get to medical necessity in a moment, you must be wearing a PAPR. An N95 with a face shield is not the equivalent here. And the reason why I say that is because there is still space that can come under the shield when you lift your head up or toss your head back from side to side. The bottom line here is that you are dealing with an instrument that has been in areas that contain high viral load. You need to be protected, period. That's number one. Number two, whatever care you normally have with instruments along those lines, phenomenally extra precautions need to be taken in this setting as well. So as not to splatter, for example, droplets anywhere beyond where it needs to be, for example not to be waving around the endoscope after it comes out of a patient's nose. You need to be in full control of that endoscope. And as soon as that endoscope comes out, it needs to be dropped into the pan and that pan needs to be covered immediately. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking of. Don't spend any more time than is absolutely necessary with the scope that's in the person's nose or with that scope exposed to those elements within the person getting it to the bucket to get it reprocessed. In terms of medical necessity, where my head is, it's not the patient that we're trying to determine an upgraded diet. It's not to determine whether a strategy is working. It's to make the distinction between, is this person have pneumonia as the very direct result of aspiration and something that we can avoid that's going to complicate that person's medical problems with the face of COVID? Is that person being kept off of a transplant list because of something related to getting them on the transplant list, for example? These are the medical necessities we need to be thinking about. So in terms of saying a blanket no to everybody who has the, at least the possibility or concern of swallowing problems with endoscopy, blankets don't exist. There's black, there's white, and there's a thousand points of gray between. And I rarely see the black and the white. It's all gray. It's an issue of risk balance. Where is this patient going to be on the other side of the endoscopy? Is it going to change medical care? Not speech pathology care, medical care. And that's where I stand on it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. And I, I think one of the issues, you know, speaking from sniff world and that outside world is, you know, a lot of the patients that we see, we see in the sniff and our role is to do everything we can in the sniff to prevent them from going into the hospital, which at this point in time, you don't want to go there, nor will, nor will some hospitals even accept you. So, you know, for me, I know there's been a few cases of, you know, at this point, this patient's looking 
you know, looking to get a peg, you know, what is the lesser of two evils? Do you do a fees with full PPE to determine if that's even necessary? Or do you do this invasive surgery that requires a peg at the hospital that they may not even get that may expose them to a million different germs? So I, I, those are kind of the risk benefit analysis that we're making in the SNFs as well. Yeah, I, I think in terms of basically any area outside the hospital, there, for all intents and purposes, and again, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but for all intents and purposes uh, in this conversation, most places are at lower risk than the hospitals. And I think that we need, we need to keep that in yeah. mind. The other issue that I, I very much want to stress is that we still have day jobs, folks. Just because the world is consumed with this pandemic that we're talking, talking about and regarding as COVID-19 does not mean that patients who are COVID negative or not even suspected to have COVID need to be abandoned, disregarded, uh, ignored, or otherwise. That is our job to treat these folks, and we should continue to do so. Abandonment is not an option. Negligence is not an option. We need to pay attention to these folks. I, I do want to circle back to, to what you said about the physical distancing, too. I think there's definitely a lot that we can do six feet away. Absolutely. I, right. I, I think people are, you know, not, not everything that we do, granted a lot of things with swallowing evaluation, is all up in their face. But there's a lot that we can do from six feet away that I think people are missing very largely. Absolutely. Hands down. I, yeah. You can still talk with a person six feet away. Yeah. That is not a problem. You know, now we're talking about social distancing. Okay. And would a normal conversation take place six feet away? Not likely. Okay. So pragmatics aside, uh, we are talking about being safe, lowering risk for both individuals or multiple individuals in that setting. There's still the question. We still have not been able to recognize with the naked eye in any form whether a person is a carrier for COVID-19. So in this setting at this time on this date of April 4th, what we do know is that physical distance is a protection that we can put into place. That even if you're remotely concerned about the patient being a carrier or remotely being concerned about being in the setting where COVID is somewhere around in at least one person, then you can certainly distance yourself to keep you extra safe. That in addition to following the CDC guidelines with regard to wearing a cloth mask made from cotton, 100% cotton, is something that we need to do. The combination of those two, two things can be quite helpful, but I also want to remind people that it's not just that. You've walked into a room. You don't know who is there before you. You don't know what's clean and what's not. You don't know what the situation is. So leaning on a desk, leaning up against the door jam, um, putting things down on a table, touching a keyboard that you don't know whether it was wiped previously or not. These are things that we need to be careful of. Once you're out of that setting and you are able to, whatever that means, to take off your mask, use your pinky fingers to pull the straps around your ears off. Don't go straight with your hand at your face where your nose and your mouth are. 
we, we still need to keep be mindful of how we're touching ourselves in terms of getting masks and gowns and everything else on and off. You need to take those precautions as well and follow CDC and local policy guidelines. Thank you, sir. Paula. So uh, I was just making some notes here. There have been a number of really great uh, online resources come out that I'm sure, because Teresa can do all this you know, fabulous stuff, that we can put some links in afterwards. I'm looking at the British Laryngological Association guidance here, which the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapy has been very involved in. And it's really cool to see this stuff popping up over in America because, you know, sometimes we do get things right over here. But uh, we have that very clear guidance. PPE should be worn for all examinations involving the upper aerodigestive tract. This includes X, Y, and Z. Flexible laryngoscopy should therefore be restricted to the patient groups listed above. All therapy-led endoscopy should cease. We're really talking about emergency stuff, or radical cancer stuff. Now, I'm not going to go into the details, but we can, we can get you links for that. And we, we come back to thinking, when we were talking about this the other day, two days ago, and things have changed, what's medically necessary? I think we need to be thinking, what's medically essential? And... Theresa or Marty said, the diet upgrades, this is not the time to be thinking about instrumental examinations for diet upgrades. Now, me, the way I would have done this and managed lots of people in the community is I don't take someone in for a video thoracoscopic swallow exam every time I want to move them from a soft diet to a regular diet. I have a good sense of how they've been handling things out in the community or even in the hospital, at home, in the school nursing facility. And I know I, I have a person who's been absolutely fine, shows no clinical signs. So I'm going I'm to move them up without doing an instrumental examination. This situation should not be a time for being even more risk averse than we already are in terms of restrictive practices around eating and drinking for our patients, our service users, as people tend to be called here now, and our families. That isn't going to help anybody either there was a very good podcast yes well it was a live transmission but it's been recorded and it's now being made available to the public by the all ireland institute of hospice and palliative care in conjunction with the trinity center for aging and intellectual disability there uh, uh, was a nurse professor and two physicians i think um, doing this transmission live there's a couple more coming up next week and they did a really good talk through some very practical things that were nothing to do with intellectual disability but you know the physical distancing stuff what this actually means what things look like but the stuff that um, hopefully will be a bit novel for us to share here is certainly in Britain we do do a lot of work still with people with intellectual disability in America kind of people over 21 they fall through the cracks a bit but for many of our people with any form of cognitive impairment Moving them from a space that they're used to, such as their home or the skilled nursing facility, the residential facility, into a different setting stresses people. And those people have limited communication abilities, whether that's receptive or expressive or both. Um, that change in context, you have to think, is that worth it? So when we're thinking about medical necessity, I think if we, if we just put the word essential in there, it just stops us for one moment and think, you know, is it really worth, even if this person is quite seriously compromised, 
taking them into a hospital. There were a couple of examples on this, uh, this webcast yesterday. You know, the person with intellectual disability taking them into a hospital, a scenario they're not familiar with, they probably can't bring their familiar carers in with them. Enormous amounts of distress. We, uh, you know, you may be in the situation where you're going to have to move to things like physical restraints, not just chemical restraints, which is something that we've tried to move away from over the years. So whether it's dementia, intellectual disability, young people with traumatic brain injuries, let's try to keep those people as safe and not needing acute hospital support as we can. That's going to help them. So this is an argument for us still doing our jobs out in the community or in, you know, not the acute settings, not just thinking about COVID, keeping people out of hospitals, reducing the burden on the acute settings also for just numbers of bodies coming in. And, you know, hospitals are pretty, they're pretty sick places. If you want to stay well, stay out of the hospital. <laughs> so these are some, you know, bigger picture things that we need to think about, both for taking action and not letting, not, escalating things up to the acute setting but taking action which actually prevents that's the act of beneficence is not just doing good but it's acting to prevent or remove harm and you know we hopefully i really want Teresa to share some more thoughts of on her observations in that in the community settings that that it's important for us to think about and not lose sight of those patients yeah i, I think our oh, go ahead Marty. no I, I go ahead i i can go after I think our role in this is huge as as rehab specialists in keeping these patients out of the hospital. Not that they may even be accepted into the hospital at this point, but I think people forget, or, or if you're not familiar with working in these settings, these patients can have a, a changing condition overnight. They can have a medical episode overnight. They can have a stroke overnight. They can have a cardiac event overnight. And our role as rehab specialists in these facilities is to try to do as much as we can there without having them sent to the hospital. So I think if you want to talk about lessening the burden on the hospitals at this point, our role is even stronger in these community settings. And, you know, I, I, I know we've got plenty of patients that these are still happening. You know, just because COVID-19 is going on in the hospital doesn't mean no patient's going to have a stroke between now and the next three months you know, anybody in, in home health, anybody in skilled nursing. So I just, I, I want to reiterate that I think our role is even magnified in these settings at this point. And, and, and I think people also realize a lot of these patients, some of them may be end of life, but a lot of what we do is helping to prolong quality of life for these patients as well. So that's where our role comes in. You know, I think of an ALS patient that's working on voice banking, you know, do we all of a sudden just say, sorry, COVID-19 is going on, even though you're negative, I'm negative, that we know of, we can still take all these social distancing, face mask precautions, but I'm not going to come see you and tough nuggies, your family doesn't get to hear your voice anymore. You know, to me, I think that's a really crappy decision. And I think we can take some precautions to be able to help these patients. At the very least, the physical distance that you have between a patient uh, and yourself with voice banking, I, you could either put a lapel microphone on somebody and stand as far as the length of the cord itself, or you can put a microphone on a boom if you want and you know put that near the patient's uh, mouth so that you can get some signal there. 
there, there are ways. We need to be creative, folks. This is not just an issue of restriction. It's how can we, within the space of restriction, still be creative to do the things that we need to do that's going to make a difference in someone's life? You know, coming back to the, the essential medical necessity types of things and hitting the point home based on what Teresa just said about uh, getting into the skilled nursing facilities and keeping them out of the hospital, endoscopy with those folks in skilled nursing facilities accomplishes both in, in the fact that the exam that you do there using endoscopy or even if video fluoroscopy, if you have that available to you in the skilled nursing facility, that at the very least can rule out a problem that would ordinarily send a patient to the hospital. That is medical necessity. That is essential. Diet upgrades are not essential. And we need to start making those distinctions. Again, to hit the point that Teresa brought up, Part of our job is to reduce the burden on the hospitals and the healthcare system broadly. It's not just to help the individual who's sitting right in front of you. It's the way it's always been, but it's more acute even in these times. Okay. Thank you. Any final thoughts on medical necessity, anybody? I just want to say one thing about masks. So this is new. It hasn't come over here yet. I'm also going to signpost to the 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 transmission recording, whatever you want to call it, that Luis Raquel May did yesterday or the day before for the National Foundation for Swallowing Disorders. Uh, and a point that really struck out to me <laughs> was the gloves line, right? If you haven't seen this podcast again, we can, I'm sure we can signpost to it. But I, I do worry, I'm just going to take the CDC on here head to head. These kinds of things give people a false sense of security. So it's a little bit like, Taking an aspirin, you know, if you're over a certain age to lessen your chance of a heart attack, wearing a cloth mask is somehow going to be a, a panacea, uh, an invisible force shield that means you don't need to think about these other things. And in the uh, podcast that Luis did yesterday, he talked about, you know, think about the gloves. What have the gloves touched? When you take off the gloves, how do you take the gloves off? Is Marty clearly you know you can rewind and listen to how do you take that mask off those masks if you cough into them i mean from a hygiene perspective you want to be washing them probably several times a day but but they're they're transmitters in and of themselves of problems and so that's my kind of my caveat about the use of something like that is we think it's somehow magical. And if we remember to wear it, we can do anything we like with all the other bits of our anatomy and goodness knows what else. The biggest thing that's going to stop the spread of this infection and slow things down is physical distancing and washing your hands a lot properly. There's, some really, there's a brilliant YouTube video with someone who's wearing black gloves and they put a little spot of black ink on their hands. I don't know if you two have seen this. So the... Uh, narration is in Spanish, that's so no good to me. But they show you exactly how to wash your hands. And because it's black ink on white gloves, it's really, really clear what you have to do. And it doesn't take a long time. And, and any of us can do that, right? That's, that's the things that are really going to help our patients. We need to remember those things too, not just the big, you know, bio hazmat suit. One, to that point, part of necessity broadly is, of course, getting out to the grocery store and collecting the food that we all need to eat. 
not everybody has the ability to order online and have delivery service and things along those lines. So some of us are going to find ourselves in the position of going out to actually get food. And I've personally done that twice or three times at this point. First thing, of course, that we want to be mindful of in those regards is that we want to minimize that. So uh, rather than go out and if you're used to shopping every three days to get the freshest of foods, perhaps what you could do is load up one time and go once a week as uh, to space things out. So it's not just the physical distance of staying your, your, you know, even if you were able to stand away from everybody in the store, it's the number of times that you're putting yourself in the position uh, where you're going to appear to have that risk. So that's one issue. The second issue is, and to Paula's point, I laugh a little bit at every worker I'm seeing these days are wearing gloves. Now, what's really interesting is that we know that the virus lasts approximately nine days without any kind of cleaner on certain surfaces, among them being plastic and cardboard specifically. So Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who has been a, on a guest spot uh, in the United States for a long time on CNN, he's a, he's a frequent uh, reporter, former I think current physician, he may still be licensed, but he's definitely a reporter uh, on these times right now, has been seen as an authority. He actually has a video out that shows us the things that we need to be careful of when we bring things home from the grocery store, that they should be wiped down in the way that we put things on the counter, we take them out of the bag, there's a dirty space and there's a clean space. And one by one, the things that we pull out that are cardboard and plastic, simply wiping them down with an alcohol cloth, with a Clorox cloth, in, in some regard, a, a soap and water kind of disposable thing uh, is a good idea. Again, it's all about risk. We don't want to take unnecessary risks. And those risks that we knew, do want to take, we want to be mindful of what specifically those risks are and how we can prevent problems from happening. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's move on to the last topic, which I think is going to really be a huge, is, is really where our role is going to come in with all of this too, is post-extubation. There's all the talk in the news of all these patients, hundred not hopefully not hundreds of thousands, but might be needing ventilators. And one of our roles as speech pathologists is navigating speaking and swallowing for patients post-extubation. And there's been a little talk about it, but, but for me personally, I think we're going to have a huge role there. Um, and I know, Marty, you just happen to know a thing or two about post-extubation, so perhaps you can chime in. A thing or two. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, so... I think the ICU is probably going to be the areas that are absolutely the hardest hit. They're the ones that are of highest risk anywhere uh, essentially in the world right now, in that not only are you deal dealing with everything that we know in terms of whatever this virus is, but you're dealing with it in very large concentrations. 
and not just from the standpoint, I mean, you're gonna have COVID floors. You're gonna even have convention centers and malls filled with COVID patients as we do right now in New York and Baltimore and Los Angeles and major cities. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is all of that on top of the fact that procedures are going on in areas like this that are, for example, operations, bedside procedures, even bronchoscopies when they're necessary, even endoscopes when they're necessary when dealing with either traumatic or difficult airways, intubations, extubations, you know, you're pulling out a tube that has been effectively bathed in the virus and other things that uh, people carry in their systems. And now they're coming out into the air out of the patient and that is being placed and properly disposed of. So these are truly the front lines, the war zone, if you will, of where healthcare is. And those are the precautions that we need to take. Many of the ICUs, I hope every ICU is limiting the number of personnel in the room at any given time. Again, full uh, PAPR masks and so forth are mandatory across every single patient in the ICU in some facilities these days, that the N95 and the face mask may be equivalent, but that specific ICU, because of the concentration, is saying it's not enough. We want to step up the game just a little bit. We have the number of PAPR units that are perfectly available, and we're going to use them. So again, it's facility-specific. As a speech-language pathologist, um, one of the things, one of the very simple things that we can do, and that I've, very, I've spoken very directly about, in fact, in the blog articles that I've written and appear on uh, Dysphagia Cafe, I believe the titles of those articles are Passport to the ICU, and they have subtitles that are immaterial at this point, but there are two articles. And the point is that there are people around you in the ICU that you can use to help you with your assessments. Teresa, and, and I think Paula alluded to this earlier, in that you can speak with a nurse who's already in the room to find out what the status of this patient is. If the patient is not awake, alert, able to function, then this is not a patient who requires your attention at the moment, move on. You know, the quote coma stim that we might be doing at the bedside, the CAM ICU as part of the cognitive evaluation that we might do at the bedside, these are things that are not necessary. CAM ICU is being done by the nurse anyway, number one. Number two, a cognitive evaluation is simply putting yourself at greatest risk when the patient is, you're going to get minimal results. So triage these patients. And the word triage is not see you later and forget about them. It's prioritization. It's figuring out who needs our help the most right now. And I think that's where the issues are. Coming back to my earlier point, what resources do you have in the ICU to make the, the, to make the determination as to whether you see the patient? Has somebody been in the room in the last five or 10 minutes? Is the nurse currently in the room? Talk with the people who are around you to get a feel for the land. If this patient doesn't sound appropriate, then there's no reason to see them. I think for the most part, non-invasive ventilation 
is off the table right now. They are nothing more than opportunities to spread airborne contaminants and they're being avoided. Intubation, of course, is going on. There's a cuff that's going on during positive pressure ventilation. The cuff is going to prevent most things from going into the airway. It is positive pressure in that there very honestly should not be a leak around that cuff, but do we know that for certain? So it's with this level of caution that we should approach these patients. Again, physical distance is going to be our best friend. Probably the language, the cognitive, the speech-oriented things can be avoided. Cranial nerve exams do not need to elicit a cough. You can simply see what the patient's swallow is like. You can have them move their tongue, change their face, et cetera, et cetera, and test other cranial nerves. You don't need to test their ability to produce a voluntary cough. There are some things that can be done. We need to use a little bit of common sense. And I I think the point mostly is that we're really, and for those of us who are old enough to know, we're really flashback 1988, 1987, prior to endoscopy, where that was never a tool that was available to us. And we had phenomenal clinical abilities. We didn't need to rely on instrumental exams as much as we have that ability now. I'd like to think that our clinical clinical acumen or clinical abilities is still intact. So along with those clinical abilities, a little bit of common sense goes a long way. Paula? Yeah, and it's it's not, I was just thinking there, it's not just about the, you know, that 15-minute clinical examination of whether this biomechanical valve system works. Someone's ability to maintain adequate nutrition and hydration, before we even get into all my favorite stuff around, you know, values and social connection and all the rest of that stuff that food and drink brings, food and drink brings, If the person is unconscious for 23 and a half hours a day, it doesn't matter how brilliantly they perform in a clinical swallow exam, they're they're not going to cope. So these these other big picture issues are really important. And dysphagia is not just aspiration. The two things are not synonymous. And the biomechanics of this little valve system here, you know, if you have someone who swallow... Uh, is fine but they have a cognitive impairment which means they're just not even remembering to eat or they're socially isolated they're an older person they can't physically get out the front door then we have a problem so I think this is really important as Marty said about the common sense and and we're the, the thing is we're trying to talk here we're trying to share some thoughts that cover many many situations right from the from the reasonably physically able couple in their own home to someone who's in a skilled nursing, a rehab facility, uh, to someone who's in an acute setting in the hospital. And that's part of what speech language pathologists or speech and language therapists do. We cover a a scope of practice that's tremendously broad. Even for an individual, that can be tremendously broad. So common sense, what is medically necessary? And this may be the point to bring us on to our ability to say this is not an appropriate person for me to be doing this assessment with as a speech language pathologist stroke therapist is a demonstration of our competence and knowledge in exactly the same way as me saying I need to get in there and do this thing that a speech language pathologist usually does so what we don't want here is people saying 
and uh, both of you have mentioned this. It's hands off. I'm a speechy. I don't do any of that stuff, and I'm not going to get the big hazmat suit on and all the rest of it. We can still say it is not appropriate this time because my knowledge of someone's neurological condition is this. My knowledge of their their social setting is this. My knowledge of how these comorbidities of diabetes and COPD and goodness knows what else. My knowledge of these things in being an, an expert or an expert in training in this area is good enough to tell me I shouldn't be involved in this. And, and that demonstrates our competence. What we can also say and what we should be saying is, but this is where my skill set's needed. This is where my knowledge is needed now and particularly in the coming months. So not just the patients that we heard about, the patient sort of grouping types. People are still having strokes, they're still having heart attacks, they've still got Parkinson's disease, they've still got kids with cerebral palsy. When I was talking to my colleague yesterday at the Royal College, I said, you know, one of the things I think about is the chronic subtle changes in cognition that happen as a result of hypoxia in any form. And I'm not a cognition language person, as you know, I'm, like, I'm barely a swallowologist, but we do know that reducing the amount of oxygen to the brain has subtle and diffuse effects, right? So I am going to tweet about this. So don't either of you two beat me to this. I'm calling on speech language pathologists as being the best, you know, profession in the world to start watching and being aware for cognitive changes that we might see in people down the line. And I did a very quick PubMed search yesterday and couldn't find anything because it's all about the acute state at the moment. I suspect there are going to be subtle cognitive changes as a result of this thing that's causing oxygen issues in the system, in the body. And we are going to be the people to pick those up. They're not going to be global head injury type acute stroke things. They're going to be much more subtle. They might be higher level things. And so I've, I'm putting a call out. If anyone has evidence on this, you know, get looking at it, all you people who do cognition. We won't be seeing it yet necessarily. This disease is still relatively new in the world. We're talking less than six months, maybe less than four months. But people are probably not even looking for that because we've got, we've got death on our hands and we've got crisis and all the rest of it. So that's kind of an area where I think we still have to advocate for our professional competence in where we're not going in and why we're not doing it and where we can do it now and where you really need me to be looking at these other people, these people further down the line, because I am the professional who can do this. Yeah. And I love that you brought up that point, Paula. That was, we had a conversation like that yesterday in, in the Med SLP Collective. There was a, a, about 10 different SLPs that were chiming in saying that a lot of these people presenting with COVID are also presenting with what looks to be brainstem strokes. And some are not getting the imaging just because we're not doing certain images at this time. But it, it was just a very interesting, you know, anecdotal observation that people were finding, but it wasn't just one or two people. There ended up being 10 people commenting on this at the end. And I think that's what I'm so fascinated with and, and what I really try to want to see what we can find. And I think we've got a few articles coming out of China at this point of what these patients are going to present with once, once they get past this acute, acute phase. And the, the challenge will be, and the papers that I have seen, uh, the, the papers have been focusing on post-traumatic stress disorder on um, whatever it is you call it when you've been in the ICU and you've been isolated. There's a 
there's a term for that, isn't there? Um, Are you talking about PICS? Yes. So Post-intensive care syndrome? Yeah. So I'm not talking about the conditions as a result of medical procedures or isolation or traumatic events. I suspect, and I don't know, that there's also going to be actual physiological changes to the brain because this is an oxygen issue and and we need to be alert to that and not that presuming everybody's going to have you know some terrible thing happening to their brains but I'm just curious and I think it's something we need to be thinking about. One of the other things that I've seen a lot of discussion on and it's I, I think it's the reason why I'm seeing it is because it's the thrust of the research that I'm doing not just because is laryngeal injury uh, and current medical practice that's happening right now in the ICUs. So assuming a patient, were, uh, for, this, for, for purposes of this part of the discussion, let's only talk about those who are being orally intubated. These are patients who are not only having oral intubation, but during oral intubation, they are proning these patients. They are flipping them over onto their stomachs, and they are trying to gather lung recruitment in terms of musculature, improved oxygenation, things along those lines. And then once that has been achieved, they're flipping them back over. So similar to the conjecture, if you will, or speculation even, in that laryngeal injury may increase with mobility around the unit. It's similar here in that now it's not just mobility around the unit. You're putting the patient in a position that an endotracheal tube was never designed to be in. When you think about this, some patients who lay down may hyperextend their neck, and the forces that are in play while the endotracheal tube is in situ may change relative to that. Now, I'm not, I'm not even suggesting that patients are being placed in that position. What I'm saying is many patients are paralyzed there's neuromuscular blocks on board when they go to prone them. So whatever position they happen to be in, they're going to be in that for an extended period of time. One of the things that, that speech language pathologists can do is when they notice a patient who is prone and you may be in the room, I'm not suggesting you necessarily would be, take a look, take a glance at the patient to see where their head is in space. Is it tucked down? more toward their chest, or is it hyperextended? And have that discussion with the nurse that a more natural position might be warranted here. At least, you know, if you're gonna prone the patient, the best thing that we can do is probably keep them from this unnatural position. Now let's, let's take the patient in either case who's going to be proned or not. Tracheostomies are being avoided right now. There's no such thing as an early tracheostomy right now, where you would normally have the discussion between 10 and 14 days during intubation. These days are being extended into 12 to 15 days before they're even considering a tracheostomy. People are going much longer with orally intubate, uh, oral intubation in an attempt to avoid the tracheostomy in the setting of trying to wean this person from the vent. And the whole point being is that A, tracheostomies will lead to exposure for the staff as well as problems with the patient, and we want to avoid that. So 
surgical procedures are being very largely tracheoesophageal or punctures right now into placements of the tracheostomy tube instead of the open procedure. So even modifications of medical necessity along these lines are very much changing. In, there's been a lot of discussion with regard to up and down cuffs and caps on trachs and tracheostomy changes and weaning and, and decannulation and all of that kind of thing. It has been very strong guidance. And I've had personal conversation with ENTs and very specifically Dr. Lee Axt, who is director at Johns Hopkins uh, Voice Center right now, where tracheostomies, once they're placed, if they're placed at all, are not being cosmetically changed, period. The patient is being discharged with the tracheostomy tube having not been changed, not downsized, not decannulated. So where are they going? So they're going wherever they go. If home is appropriate, they're going home. If they're going to skilled nursing facilities and rehab facilities, they're going there. So do we have a role there? We have a huge role. Okay. The patients who are being discharged presumably are being discharged COVID negative. So the point here is that they're not being treated during the acute care stay in the typical fashion that we would normally treat these patients. Ideally, they'd be the trachs would be changed, they would be downsized, the patient would be decannulated, and they many patients would be discharged with perhaps a piece of gauze and a tape over their neck where the stoma was and on their way. Uh, right now, at most, what's happening is that when the tracheostomy tube is being placed, yes, cuffs are permitted to be deflated. It's just not under the condition of positive pressure. So we're not deflating cuffs while the patient is on the vent. And definitely we're not using non-invasive ventilation, okay? Trach masks are a whole nother situation. Those are trying to be avoided, but sometimes you simply can't avoid it because humidification and heat are necessary for the mucosa. So bottom line is once the patient is out of the ICU or even while they're still remaining in the ICU, but off a vent, the cuff is coming down. They are placing speaking valves on the patient. They are capping trachs. None of that is going to be of any greater risk to you as an individual, as a practitioner, than anybody speaking out of their mouth. The, it, the flow of air is going to come in through the trach with a speaking valve on, and it's going to go out their mouth in a very typical way as you are as a human being right now with a closed system. You are at no greater risk in speaking to that patient than you are with a patient who has a closed system, with the caveat being that you don't want an open trach with a person who now creates the projectile of sputum that's coming out of the trach. Okay, so major caution there. And I would encourage a surgical mask or the equivalent around the patient's trach if you're going that route with finger occlusion. But again, we're, we're back to this. It's this real fine balance of we want to show our skill set and we want to do good for people, be beneficent. But sometimes it is better, as Marty said a long time ago in this podcast, to, to step back and look after yourself 
and and it is it is a time when perhaps what we think of as best practice two weeks ago in terms of cosmetics and getting you know tube sizes down and all the rest of it this is a vet this is a, a new world and and every day we're trying to to go forward being competent and compassionate clinicians in a, in a world that has changed radically. And not all of the old rules apply. Some of the old rules, it's about time we reviewed them. And I think that's going to, it is leading to, to distress, to moral distress within clinicians. We're seeing a lot of headlines, you know, doctors are going to have to decide or nurses or whoever who lives and who dies, who gets the vent and who doesn't get the vent. That's always been the case, right? There's, there's never, there's no medical society in the world where people can get everything they want at any time they want. That's never been the case. And it's, it's perhaps more acute. And, and I think I, I, what I'm trying to encourage is that people don't, beat themselves up too much because they are feeling distressed and they take solace in the fact that this is a, a new world and they talk to other people and they don't feel duty bound to do the things that other people are doing somewhat heroically there's some great stuff on twitter at the moment because i'm off facebook i don't like the beanhead but i like twitter and, you know, there's, there's people, you know, they've learned a third language and they've got all their kids crocheting llama sheds and goodness knows what else. And other people are saying, I can barely get out of bed in the morning. I am really struggling with this. And now I feel doubly bad because I haven't learned to play, you know, the viola. <laughs> and so I, I worry and I hope that part of, you know, three of your podcasts, I think, are a great, a great support for people who can access it, who are often geographically isolated, practicing clinicians, to know that these are struggling times. The fact that you're concerned about stuff means that you are engaged in the care that you're providing. If you're not worried about things at the moment, you shouldn't be operating clinically. You know, We do worry about our patients. And, and take a moment to think you're doing the best in the situation that you can do in. We talked earlier on, you know, different states have rules, different hospitals have rules, different countries are going to be giving best advice. You do the best you can, check in with other people, and, and we need no profession shaming from people who are in a position where perhaps they're all running around in hazmat suits to say to someone else in a different place, well, you know, the cloth mask is completely useless. useless. But the cloth mask and the physical distancing could be the only thing that's available and the best thing that's available. So I think those are some points that I'm hoping Teresa is going to somehow magically bring together to give some support to people who are out, clinicians who are out there struggling with the whole, you know, basic shit show that's going on at the moment. Yeah. And, and it is tough. Yeah. I, I think what I what I want to reiterate too, Marty, is is to your point of in the ICU, you guys are not doing these typical things that used to have been done. And what is scaring the living daylights out of me is I work in all these sniffs where all these years prior, they would never accept a patient that was on a vent or had a trach. And now I think we're going to get an influx of patients. And in fact, I know there's, there's a skilled nursing facility around the corner from my house this entire corporate group has never accepted patients on vents or trachs. And they were just told by the governor, get ready, you're taking all these patients. 
And so I have a public cry to speech pathologists working in these settings to do whatever you can to learn about vents and trachs. And I think, is this the ideal setting? Is this the ideal time to learn about them? Absolutely freaking not. But they're coming to your facility. <laughs> and, and and I don't know what the answer is to get competent with them without proper mentorship and without, you know, we like to do this not when we're in a global pandemic, but this is where we are with the times. And I, and I think whatever you can do to reach out for support, I know there's some wonderful companies putting on these trainings and about vent settings, about how to, to deal with these trachs. And, and I think we're, we're going we're gonna to be dealing with them a lot more really quick here. To your points, uh, Teresa and Paula, for that matter, these facilities are operating, and when I say these facilities, I mean outside the hospital, whatever they may be, are operating under very different conditions than they ever have before. Patients, in order to avoid a peg tube, are being discharged with nasogastric tubes, for example. Patients, even within the hospital, are going uh, days and weeks with nasogastric tubes placed uh, from the time that they were ventilated. So, you know, what typically happens in our facility specifically, most of the patients are intubated with an oral gastric tube. When the endotracheal tube is removed and the patient comes off the vent, because the oral gastric tube is taped to the endotracheal tube, both tubes come out at the same time. So now the patient under normal conditions would have a swallowing screening, a swallowing evaluation and proceed forward. Right now, if they're not passing a swallow screening, they're getting an NG tube placed. And that patient is going to go days to weeks, depending on whether speech pathology can come and see that patient. Again, you know, part of this is medical necessity, even on the part of the physicians saying, we can handle this. We're not going to order a speech pathologist to come see this patient, or we're very concerned about this patient. We really need some guidance here, and they're getting in to do it. So at multiple levels, everyone seems to be making the decision as to what really is the medical necessity? How can we reduce exposure among the staff? And again, we're finding the same, same thing as we always have. Nothing has changed. The physician and the medical team are still the gatekeepers here. We're just under extraordinary circumstances. So yeah, Paula said, Teresa said, I've said, the world is a different place right now. I think one of the things that we all need to keep in mind is that flexibility is going to get us through the day here. It's not going headstrong into one direction or the other. It's the ability to sway with the punches. And those who are really capable of swaying with the punches are the ones who are going to survive. Those who have inflexibility of thought in one direction or the other, they're the ones who are going to burn out. They're the ones who are going to see major problems on the back end. And they're the ones who are not going to be effective as therapists and as clinicians more broadly. Well stated, my friend. Any final thoughts? Stay safe, people. Yeah. Yeah, do the best you can. Reach out, check in with other people. Don't don't be careful of what you say in terms of not shaming your your fellow professionals. Yeah. Support people where you can. 
understand that people are working in terrible, terribly difficult situations. And then there's their home life. I, and, and actually, I was going to suggest uh, that as well. I, uh, your point earlier, we're all under a great deal of stress. You know, for those of you on the front line, you're dealing with it smack dab in the face of a pandemic, in the face of clinicians whose stress levels and adrenaline is really pumping harder than what they normally are. For those of us who are not in front of a patient, uh, meaning the researcher and the academician, I, I don't know about you, Paula, but I'm quite literally answering 50 emails a day, which is easily three times the number that I'm normally used to. Uh, I'll send some your with. way then. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm in the midst of writing articles to address this situation. I'm involved in an international effort, and uh, I'll be having another article come out, what I hope to be soon, that will address going forward, and maybe that's another podcast, going forward, where where do we see ourselves three months from now? And what is that clinical population going to look like? Um, how are we going to address it? So bottom line, everybody's tensions are running high at work. Many of us even bring home those tensions and you know the people at home are affected in some way by that. So I think um, to Paula's point, not only do we need to be kind to each other and, and be flexible, but I think we all need outlets and space for ourselves, um, people to speak to, to not necessarily unload, but find a time that kind of put hits the reset button a little bit, gets us back more toward the baseline that we would normally feel so that we can get at it and do it again tomorrow. Well said. All right. We're going to end there. Thank you so very much, you two. It's been a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's all your idea, Teresa. Always. <laughs> I'm sad that this global pandemic had to bring us together, but I'm happy it did. So Too long. Too long. Yes. Mm -hmm. right, looking forward to the end. All right. Or at least less. Yes. All right. Thank you, my friends. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.